wife, um, Helen, naturally sends her greeting. She's currently in London, and uh, I think she's been up there um, for a 10-day period. That doesn't count the flying time. But in that 10 days, by the time she finishes their Sunday, she will have preached 15 times. So she's been very, very busy. Uh, and uh, But she does. She loves, uh, loves what God's doing here in your church, loves you guys. And uh, we together love Byron and Hannah, and uh, they, they're a good couple. And I believe that, um, you know, even though Byron would like to tell us all, you know, <laughs> uh, he's unashamed of it. But I think that's pretty good, isn't it? When you know you're called, you can make a difference. <laughs> Amen? When you know you're called, you can make a difference. Sometimes we don't, we're not confident in our call. And so, therefore, we, we become a, a wee bit unashamed. Or ashamed. We, we don't actually, we, the, and I think the church must be confident and must rise up and make a clear statement, otherwise we're in trouble. Uh, this week has not been a good uh, week for our nation. Um, and I'm just for a moment, just want to just probably speak into that because I think that it's important we understand. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, whenever, whenever something happens like, happened legally with the, the marriage, I call it the redefinition of marriage. Um, I, I believe we need to really uh, work out a positive response. And my positive response to something like happened this week is that the church must rise up. This is not a time for the church to be quiet. In fact, if you really look at it, in New Zealand, 20% of our population, and it's been surveyed, are Christian, born-again Christian, 20%. Now, that is a very, very high percentage and we need to rise up as a church and begin to be clearer in what we believe and we understand. Sadly, when you listen to some of the speeches in Parliament, uh, everybody, I don't know whether it's sad or not, but everyone talked about God. And they talk about God as being loving. But what you've got to understand in Scripture, and I just asked for a coin, because often you can look at a coin and you can say there's two sides, but there are actually three. And when you look at God and when you look through the Bible, God always talks about mercy and truth. Mercy is God's expressed for his love. God is a loving God. I praise God. In his love, he's been incredibly merciful towards me. How many praise God he's merciful? Come on. He's merciful. He understands our weakness. He understands our vulnerability. He understands our, our, our ability to be tempted into sin. He's a merciful, loving forgiving God. But God is also a God of truth. You can't have mercy and love without truth. Truth is really what gives us the foundation of what we build our lives upon. And the Bible says Jesus is the truth. He's the truth. And when you look at the, the statements of Jesus, he will always talk in truth about the things that have power to destroy us. He always talks about the things that have power to destroy us. And really, that's simply what sin is. Sin is not killjoy. Sin is the things. When you understand God, sin is about self-destruction. So God, in his mercy and in his love, reaches out to us so we don't destroy ourselves. Right? But in, in establishing us, on the opposite side, they seem opposed. He's a God of truth because he wants to build into our life a foundation that cannot be destroyed. And the sad part of what has happened in our country is people's morality are determining the foundation of our country. 
So whatever feels good, it must be all right. But that's not how God works. God is a God of mercy because he wants to reach out to us, but he's also a God of truth. He's a God who wants to build the foundation of our life. And that's why there's three sides to a coin. This is not particularly good because you can't roll it. But if you take a car tire, if you want momentum in your life, you've got to have mercy and truth. And then you get this, the, the third side, which gives you the ability to move forward and to progress well. And that's why you need both things working, because that gives you momentum. Otherwise, you're just tossing a coin. And I believe it's so important. I know I'm probably preaching to the converted, but the church must understand that God is loving. Amen? He is merciful, but he is also a God of truth. So therefore, the foundation of what we preach and what we teach is that, yep, we want truth. I want truth in my life because that governs me and helps me through the areas of my personality that can be tempted to do something wrong. So I need truth to basically, fundamentally help me. Amen? And that's why the church must rise up unashamedly because we have a good foundation. We need mercy. Some people just preach truth. Some people just preach mercy. But we need to see God as a God of mercy and truth. And when we have those operating in our life, then we can move forward. And every single one of us, as I said, we need mercy. I need the mercy. If you don't believe me, I just want to give you a scripture so you can study it, look at it. But turn to Psalm 85. And uh, I believe this is a powerful scripture to help the church understand because many people haven't been taught well and they think, oh, well, that's just the trend. Do you know homosexuality goes right back to the day of Noah? It's not a new trend. <laughs> so does prostitution. So does man's immorality. It goes way back. This is not trendy. <laughs> this is just the disease of man. And it's come up, it's popped up in every generation in, in life. And so this is not a new trend. This is fundamentally the devil doing what he's done for, for centuries, trying to, trying to destroy people's sexuality and to destroy who they are because fundamentally we've created in the image of God. Amen? And so we need to understand. Psalm 85, just to give you a scripture. Here it is here. Look, verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Don't you like that? Mercy and truth have met together. Two opposite things, but they've met together. They had a little gathering. Amen? So they had a little gathering. That, the gathering is expressed in the person of Jesus. And then it says, righteousness, which seems opposed, and peace have kissed. This one says, righteousness, so right living, and peace go hand in hand. They kiss. They work together. So if you want peace in your life, you live righteously. Because they kiss. That's where peace comes from. It com comes from understanding the fundamental way God works. And they sometimes seem opposed, but they're not. They've kissed. And then it says, truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And I think that that is incredibly powerful. Before I put it in my pocket, I'll give you your amazing dollar back. <laughs> Thank you. But do you see what I'm saying? And I believe that's where all of us need to look at it because fundamentally, I can remember, uh, just so you understand, as a young man, having a car accident through the influence of alcohol. So when I see those ads on TV, I don't judge and say, you idiots. Because once I was one of those people who had a car accident through the influence of alcohol. But in God's mercy, he reached down to me, he forgave me, 
And then he established my life in truth. So he gave me a foundation now to stand, and I'll use the word so Bruce Monk would no longer be an idiot. (laughs) Amen? Everyone understand the language? (laughs) Amen? And that's why we need mercy and truth. Any other idiots in the room? Or have been? (laughs) Because it is self-destruction, and that's what we've got to understand, and that's what we're going to see. Amen? By the end of my message today, you'll understand fundamentally three things that will change your life. Amen? How many are interested in three things that can change your life? Amen? Um, about the beginning of the year, I'm not sure whether you were in the service, uh, some of you might have come into the city, and I just want to, before I get in my message, just uh, talk about shout, because that's coming up in nine days, and uh, you know, that's an expression of Auckland Equipers Church and Equipers through New Zealand, but it's also an expression of Acts churches. Uh, from my knowledge, there have been other events, but there have only been two. This will be the second major Christian event in the Vector Arena. Come on. And, and you're part of it. Amen? So that's why I want to inspire you and encourage you to get there, because we are actually making a statement. That's what's going to deal with the gay issues and everything else in our country, is when the church can corporately get together and make a statement we're alive. Amen? And I believe that that's one thing we can do. Together as a movement, we're on the move. Amen? And in fact, can I tell you a little bit of good information? The Pentecostal movement is the fastest growing movement in the world. In the world. It outstrips Islam. It outstrips any other movement in the world. It is the fastest growing movement in the world. And in New Zealand, the fastest growing churches are Pentecostal charismatic churches, and they are making a difference. And we're part of it. Amen? Come on. I think celebrate that. Give God a clap. So we're not part of a sinking ship. We're part of something that's fundamentally changing the nature of the world. How many like that? Come on, so we're on the move, so be confident that you're on a winning ship. (laughs) Amen? This is not a sinking ship, it's a winning ship. Amen? Uh, At the beginning of the year, that's what I started off to say. I'll come back to my message now. I just got carried away there, but anyhow. Jordan Smith, who's a great communicator, and when he speaks, I always listen, because he he communicates in a way I can't communicate like him. He's a very contemporary young man. I'm an older contemporary man. <laughs> but but when it, when it, he did a sermon, and it was in January, but it was really set around the, the Christmas story. And the, the, the theme of the service was that the wise men had to leave. Everybody knows where they were. Where were they? They were in the east. They had to leave east, and they followed the star, and they came west. And when they came west, they found Jesus. So we had our grandson in church. He's eight years of age. And he intently listened to the sermon. We got in the car, and Jordan, like he typically does, he extrapolated (laughs) this message and made it very contemporary, funny. But the fundamental part of the message was, sometimes we've just got to leave east. And we're going to come west, and we're going to come to where Jesus is. So we get in the car, we're going home. And we have our little grandson, he's eight, his name is Theo, and he knows I tell people the story, and he said, 
I've decided to go west. That's what he said, I've decided to go west. And Helen, being quite inquisitive, said, what do you mean, Theo? What do you mean go west? He said, oh, I've got some naughty things in the east. (laughs) He said, I'm going west. (laughs) And then Helen went a little further and she said, what are the naughty things in the east? You don't need to know, Mammy, but I've decided to go west. (laughs) And here's a little boy, eight years of age, sitting in an environment of which is more a mature congregation, but he picked up the essence of the sermon. He picked up the essence of the message. And do you know in life, there's points where we've just got to make a decision to change direction. Because the current direction we're heading is actually not going to be good for us. I love this story, and I I want to just build build a foundation before I tell you my three things. I love the story in Isaiah chapter 6 where it talks about Isaiah having a vision or a dream. He was taken up to heaven. He said, I saw the Lord. Amazing. How many would like to see the Lord like he did? I think that would be quite fundamentally (laughs) life-changing. But he saw the Lord. But he said, as he started it, he said this. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And so one day I was just caught by the little thought Uzziah died. So I went back and I went into 2 Chronicles 26 and I looked up the life of King Uzziah. Uzziah was a, uh, uh, was a king. He became a king at a very young age. In fact, he became king when he was 16 years of age, which is pretty young to be a king. And so at 26 years of age, he became king. It just says it in Isaiah, 20, uh, sorry, 2 Chronicles 26 verse 3. And I'm not reading his story, but I, I just want to bring your attention to a couple of scriptures. It says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And here it is, it says, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. So it's like, you know, this young boy fundamentally made a choice for God as a young man. That affected the way he governed as a king, he did what was right in the sight of God. So there was a level of Uzziah's life that was committed to what God wanted for him. I've studied all around the world, and I've often asked people, I might have done it here, but my observation is that 85% of people, I've preached in 32 different, no, 38 different countries of the world, and quite often I ask people to stand if they've given their heart to Christ before they're 25 years of age. So I've found that probably 25% of people, and this is true statistically in America, make a fundamental commitment, defining commitment to Christ before they're 25. But yet, a lot of churches don't understand that. So they're more working towards meeting the mature people rather than the people who will make the fundamental change. And I think Generations Church understands that, and that's why you're looking to say, how can we reach this emerging generation? Amen? Because if we can, we will change society. You're not going to change society by trying to save people my age. You won't do it. Because they've already made up in their mind what they believe. And I I get surprised how many older people actually are really stubborn towards God, even though they're close to death. 
Why? Because there's a spirit. They've made up, they've made up their mind. But young people are really open to the gospel. And this, this young man was. To build on to the story, it goes on in verse 16. And this is so important if you're older today. If you're older, this is for you. Because it says, when he got older, when he matured, it says, he became strong in his heart and was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord. It really does matter what happens in the middle of life. So you can actually make a, quite a, an important commitment to Christ when you're young. But really, what is the strength of your commitment is how you handle the middle of your life. It's not what, what you do in the middle, at, at the beginning. And a lot of people make a defining commitment at the beginning, but as they go through the middle part of their journey, they somehow get cluttered. They get, things happen. They get offended, they get hurt, something happens in life, they get disappointed with God, sometimes they get disappointed with the wife, they get disappointed with the cat and kick it out. They do, a whole lot of things happen in the middle part of your life. And it's at that point will determine how you finish. Now, sadly, Uzziah died a leper. He died a leper. He was judged. I praise God we live in the New Testament. <laughs> I don't see too many lepers walking around because they have become strong in their own mind and somehow put God out of the equation because that's really what it did. I now am strong. I made up my mind where God fits. I made my mind up that God can't, fit into the equation of who I am. So therefore, God is now out of the equation. I'm not doing it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. Pretty dangerous. Uh, I have uh, been to two funerals in the last few months, taken one, spoken another, of two of my mates. One I, one I led to the Lord. Uh, he died this week. His name was Owen Raleigh. Uh, died at 75 through cancer went. And I remember meeting Owen last July, and I sat with him. And he sat in his chair. You could see his body was being impacted by cancer. And he looked at me. Just this beautiful smile. The room was full of peace. And he said, I'm ready, Bruce. I'm ready. He said, I, I, I know what I want at my funeral. I've got everything ready for Jocelyn. Everything's right. I'm ready. Now, his wasn't a, a sudden death. But young people, be careful because sometimes you think you'll never die, but we're all going to die. Amen? But he was ready. And his send-off this week was amazing. The other one was David Kent, who was a good mate. He was my PA. and He died Christmas Eve. Remember going into the room and being with David that night. The amazing thing was that he got someone to go out and buy a bracelet. And that night, he gave it to his wife to say goodbye. And thank you for being such a loving wife. But the thing that, and I won't stretch the story out too much, but the thing that I really loved about David's life was the children. Because in our church, he was known as the lolly man. He was known as the lolly man. Every week, he'd come to church, he'd sit around about, what's your name? Matthew. Sit around about where Matthew is. 
guarantee every every Sunday, round about where Matthew, doesn't matter what the building looked like, that's about where he sat. <laughs> every week he'd be there. But in the middle of his life, they went through pain. They couldn't have children. They sought to adopt a child, and then the child was taken away from them a month later because the mother wanted the child back. And so they said, well, we'll never, never do that again. I can't live through the pain of that. Basically, together, they, they processed it. Initially, they hated Mother's Day. He hated Father's Day because all it did was stir up the pain in his life. But in the middle, he decided to make a decision. Well, if I can't have children, we're not going to have children, I'm going to be the lolly man at church. I'm going to fill up my pockets. I'm going to fill up a bag. Every Sunday I come to church, every kid will know who I am. And they did. They would run from the side of the church to the lolly man every day. It wasn't just to get a lolly, even though it was a carrot. (laughs) But he knew every one of their names. They became his kids. Church became his family. In the middle, he made a decision not to get hurt and offended with God, made a decision not to get offended with people, not to get disappointed with life and what was their lot. But he made a choice. He made a decision. So when we had his funeral, and I love telling a story, the same as this guy this week. I love telling a story because he finished well. He finished well. Doesn't mean to say he didn't have problems in the middle. He had problems in the middle. So his wife decided, well, what do we do? I'll just get a normal, ordinary coffin. What's his favorite color? I'll paint it turquoise because that's his favorite color. She had it painted. Then she got everybody to put a description of what David meant to them. For some, the nieces and their nephews, Uncle David. To her, I can't remember what she put. For me, it was Kenty, because that's what I called him. He was known as Kenty. Others put other descriptions. But right across the front was this little statement, the lolly man. They brought the coffin in. And right from it, some might have been there, but... Lynn decided to load the coffin with lollies. You couldn't have got another lolly on his coffin. That's how big the mound was. It was packed with lollies. Came to the end of the services, and we encouraged every little kid that could possibly come to come to the lolly man's funeral. Because I'd been out to see him while he was dying. I remember the night he died, going out and just gathering around his bed. Many of us were there. Wayne and Libby were there playing and singing and we were ministering before the Lord. And I remember going up to him, my pastor, last hug, because he'd struggled. He believed that he'd get healed, but I had to help him to say, come on, David, are you ready to die? Pretty hard thing for a pastor. And I, I put my arms around him and the last hug, this weak body that was destroyed by cancer but somehow found the ability to put his arms around me pulled me in, and he said, I'm ready. I'm ready. I went to the end of the bed, and he put his two thumbs up like this. He said, I'll see you soon. I hope it's not that too quick. (laughs) But he put his thumbs up. It was like, yep, I I know where I'm going. I'm ready to go. He had peace. He knew what was happening. There was no fear. But then... I took the service and many people spoke. And then at the end, I, I, I 
I just did the spontaneous thing. I walked down off the stage and came and stood in front of his coffin. I said, how about all the children come today and get their last lolly from the lolly man? All these little kids came down, came across the front. They didn't get a lolly that day. They were filling their pockets up, and they were packing them in, and they were laughing, and there was just a sense that, wow, this is a different funeral. The brother who's not a Christian, he saw what was happening. He joined the party, and he turned the funeral service into a lolly scramble. (laughs) So the whole coffin was in the end cleaned of all that mound of lollies. And the amazing thing is I went out to the graveside and we were there and there's these little kids, little kids, we had some lollies left, walked past. Normally you pick up a bit of dirt or flour, but they dropped some lollies on the top of the coffin. The lolly man. How will you be remembered when you finish? How are you going to remember when you finish that? You know, because it's, as I said, it's easy to make a defining commitment when you begin. But then you get married. Oh, man, children, you don't know how busy it is. Well, I had four kids in four years. I know what it's like. (laughs) And in the ministry. But we make decisions based on life. Our mind takes over. We govern, we process ourselves through life. But at the detriment of our connection and our relationship with God. Sometimes, and I speak to you, a young man, your career can start to dominate. The kingdom of God really becomes secondary to what you're called to do rather than actually seeing that we're here to fulfill the kingdom of God. So really, we, we, we can make decisions. And I watch people who have been, I've been around long enough to know, who have made these defining commitments. They're on fire for God. But somehow, in the middle, say in the middle, come on, say in the middle, you get offended with a pastor, not borrowing, no. <laughs> get offended with God, they get offended with the church, they get offended with people, they can get offended with family, they get offended with life, they get offended with, or, or, or they just change their agenda and their mind becomes strong in themselves that somehow God no longer fits into the equation. And what happens is as they process through life, they come to the end and they're not ready for what is going to happen to us all going to happen to us all. <laughs> we will all die. <laughs> but are we ready? Morris Williamson's address this week in Parliament is pretty scary. <laughs> because the Bible says you don't just burn. Fundamentally, you are tormented eternally if you're not on the right side of the or left side or whatever side of the equation. See, what happens in the middle is really important. What happens in the middle, I think, Christianity is really important. So what I've found is three things that have helped to hold me. Amen? How many want to know my three secrets? How many want to know my three secrets? This is what will. This is what has held me. And I'm believing they'll hold me to the end. This is what's held me. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. These are the words of Jesus. That's why... I think they're, they're, they're pretty powerful, they're pretty important. And I, I believe that the church, God is just calling the church, and, and, and I pray you hear my heart back to just being simple and clear. Because I think fundamentally we can actually clutter the church up with a whole lot of stuff. But really when it all boils down, what are 
the important things of life. Amen? What, what's important? What's really important? What's important for you? What's important for me? What will hold me? If I'm not a preacher, what's going to hold me in my connection with God? Amen? Because if it's all in the doing, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I, I, I know a lot of preachers who preach and then they stop preaching and don't attend church anymore. And I think, you don't understand these three things. <laughs> you don't understand. Something, something, something's wrong because really preaching is only what we do. It's not who we are. You know, I, I say to people all around the world, I, I said, you know, some people call me pastor. I actually could be called bishop if you really wanted to. <laughs> he, he introduced me as an apostle. So I could say apostle or mister. But when I go home, my boys call me the old man. <laughs> That's how real it is. That's how real life is. Because who you are at home is really who you are. <laughs> it's not how people respect you or define you. You could have letters beyond your, on your name or you could think you're defined by, by your degrees and what you do, but you're not defined by your degrees and what you do. You're defined by who you are. How does your wife see you? <laughs> that defines you. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> I think she'd be the one who would kick you in the knees and keep you down. <laughs> or in the butt sometimes. <laughs> Matthew 22, verse 34, it just says, but when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees they gathered together. Jesus constantly silenced the religious leaders of that day because his message was so opposed to everything they stood to. That's what he did. He, he silenced them. They did not like him because their life was about position. Their life was about their, their degrees. It was about their belief systems, but it wasn't about a connection or a relationship with God himself. Then he goes on, he says, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. And it uses the word testing him. So again, trying to push Jesus into a corner, testing him. Come on, what is life about? What is life about? Come on, Jesus, what is this about? Testing him, putting pressure on him. And then Jesus said these words. Where he said, the question was, teacher, which is the great commandment of the that's a pretty good question that we should listen to his answer. Don't you think? Because he actually said, which is the great? Say great. Come on, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus gave this answer. He just says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first great. Say great. Come on, this is the first great commandment. Then he goes on and says, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and he says, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. He said everything in the Old Testament, if you understand 
Those two commandments, you'll understand God. Won't be difficult. Remember when we first made a defining commitment as a couple together, husband and wife. I was 22, Helen was 20. We got married in the August. We went to the sounds with a friend of mine who was an evangelist. He put us on a yacht for three days. We had no escape. <laughs> Even though I'd given my heart to the Lord when I was a young boy of 12 and Helen made a commitment when she was 15. But throughout life, no one had ever really preached to the, us, preached the gospel to us through that time. Growing up in an Anglican church, we got home from being in the sounds on this trip. We go to our little Anglican church in Tihoro. Does anyone know where Tihoro is? It's a little place north of Wellington, one shop. That's where we had a farm. It's where we grew up. It's one of these, these sort of lovely Anglican buildings you see around all in the country in New Zealand. This one was well looked after. They had a beautiful picket fence, all these native trees. You sort of meandered up the, the pathway to the, this, this church that seated about 60 people, places that people would like to have a wedding in or get buried from <laughs> if they could know what was happening. But we went in. Today it was a revival. Nine people were there. Walked into church. What I didn't realize was that they'd just appointed a new vicar. I'd been to church off and on, and that's why nothing had really happened in my life for years. I can't remember any sermon. All as I can really remember is waking up when it finished. <laughs> Went through the motion. But this day I remember. This guy was a Christian. He preached the gospel. He challenged about a fundamental commitment to Christ. He talked about how you need to make a commitment to Jesus. It's not just enough to have a belief. Many believe in God, but they haven't made a commitment. He, he gave the challenge. Went home in our, in our farm kitchen, and I, I remember Helen. She just said these words. She said, we're either all for God or nothing. I remember that day making a commitment that established the foundation of my life that I've had to challenge and renew many times, but it became the foundation of who I am today, and it's held me through difficult times, through pressure times, through good times, was just a simple commitment to give my all to Jesus Christ. So out of this, when I read it, I thought, what are the three things that have helped me to navigate my life? coming up 65, what's helped me to navigate? What's helped me keep passionate for God? What's helped me keep me in love with God? And I, I really came up with these three things. Here they are. Write them down. Here's my three things. And they, they, they just simply come from this passage of Scripture. Amen? Here it is. Number one, love God wholeheartedly. Love God wholeheartedly. God, God is not into departmentalization. God is not on, into a God of Sunday that doesn't fit your world, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. God is looking for people who are wholehearted, total 
in their commitment to him. We cannot change a nation without people who are wholehearted, spirit, soul, body, not departmentalized. That's religion. That's religion. Religion departmentalizes God. We have a God we come to church to, to honor on a Sunday, but we do stupid things for the rest of the week. We don't let God govern our behavior. We don't let God govern our anger. We don't let God govern our morality. We don't let God govern our job. We don't let God govern our education. We are not wholehearted. I know I'm preaching. Am I preaching? I hope hope you know I'm preaching. (laughs) Wholehearted. Then the next one, which I really like, which probably Byron might understand a little. (laughs) But I'll challenge him. Love yourself confidently. (laughs) Love yourself confidently. And that's really where the church has got to grow up. Because the sound is not clear. We are timid. We, we, we don't know. When you love God wholeheartedly, God will define you as a person. You will learn to accept who you are. You will not let society mold you. You will let God mold you. You will know the grace. You will know where God's wired you. You will know how to function. You will know what to do. As you can see, I'm quite loud. People have tried to quiet me down for years, including my mother, who's still alive in 96. They've tried to quiet me down, but God has wired me. God has made me passionate. God has given me the ability to communicate like I did. It's not something that I will make an excuse or be ashamed of. This is who I am. Some people like it, some don't, but I don't care. It's me. We went to a doctor of psychology. I think you guys went, didn't you? He was very helpful, wasn't he? (laughs) But he said this, which really offended me to the core. He said, Helen, you are so level. You are almost so normal. You know, nothing ruffles you. You just glide your way through life. But he turned to me and says, but you! (laughs) But you! You're the passionate one. You're the emotional one. No, no, she cries more than me. (laughs) But if you don't know who you are, all you do is try to imitate someone else. Try and be a rock star, or you try and be a rugby player, or you try and be something you're not. But instead of just looking at yourself and saying, God, I thank you for who I am. I thank you for the way you've wired me. I can't do everything, but I can do some things. The reason I can do some things is because I know who I am. One day I woke up in the mirror, and please listen to me, I'm not Byron. (laughs) But I looked in the mirror, probably about 15 years ago, and I winked and said, not bad, God. But it was a defining moment. I'm happy with who I am. I don't have to be someone else. Jesus has defined me. That's how you can love yourself confidently. And then the third thing. So there's the first one was what? Come on, say it with me. Love God. Love yourself. Here's the, here's the third one, which I reckon is pretty powerful. Love others unconditionally. 
love others unconditionally without prejudice. Not just people that fit into your world. It's really the role of the church. We will be challenged to love people who are confused with their sexual orientation. We will love them. It's not about judging them, it's about loving them. This is how it works. You ready? Loving, loving others unconditionally is pretty powerful. We'll come back to that in a moment. But you can't love people unconditionally until you've learned to love yourself confidently. And you can't love yourself confidently until you love God wholeheartedly. They work together. That's how God frames it. That's, that's, that's why the gospel is incredibly powerful. Because what the gospel does is help. He, he, the gospel in its essence redefines you as a person. Because society wants to shape you. Sometimes your mother wants to shape you. I remember my daughter, she looks like a mother but acts like a father, the poor kid. <laughs> but my wife was a ballerina. She had a ballet school. She's got letters after her name. You will still see by the way she stands, her posture that she has done better. My daughter, oh, you've got to be like your mother. Go to ballet. My daughter hated it. (laughs) She's like her father. (laughs) You can't make your children. You shape them. You let God shape them. You can't force them. You can't make your kid a rugby player, Dad. Just because you want them to play rugby, they might want to. But yet they might want to. You see, what shapes your identity is so important as letting, because when the true essence of the love of God is working in your life, you will become more confident with who you are as a person. You won't have to apologize. I reckon that's what fills churches. Why? Because it's a gospel about winning. I believe what... Would you mind playing the people? I, I, I think what fills churches is when we can love people unconditionally. We have no prejudice. Because I, I actually think God will often challenge us to reach out to someone that we wouldn't normally connect with. They'll ask us to go over the second mile. For me, I know he's told me to embrace an emerging generation of young people. I'll do all I can to identify with them. I won't, I won't, I'm not, I'm not going to be mutton dressed up as lamb. I don't need to change who I am. But I want to know their world. I want to know their pain. I want to know what they're going through. I'll take them fishing. I'll stand and talk to them. I listen to their stories. Why? Because I want to reach them in their world. I'll put my arms around them when they're in pain. I'll touch their lives. And I think that's what makes a great church. It's able to embrace another generation beyond where you are. Remember when we came to Auckland, and it was a challenge to me. A guy came into our office in Auckland. I'm just about to close. He came into our office and 
He was, you can say this word here in New Zealand, you can't say it around the world, but he was a bum. Does anyone know what a bum is? A bum is someone who's living on the streets. Their whole life's been destroyed because something's happened in their past. And they've lost sight of who they are and no longer value who they are and they just live a derelict life. He stunk. But I remember the Holy Spirit just clearly saying to me, Bruce, take him home. This was more about Bruce Monk. It wasn't about this guy. I remember putting him in my car and taking him home. I had to open all windows. This house smelly. Got home. I thought, well, what do you do with a guy like this? So I thought, I'll just do what I think I should do. I thought the first thing he needed would be to have a shower. I said, how about, how about mate, we, I've got a whole lot of clothes. You know, we, we can give you some new clothes. But I didn't realize that this guy hadn't taken his pants off for ages. All his legs were infested. Right down his leg. I had to get a nurse to come to take him off. His legs were just ulcerated. And horrible. So the nurse came and she showered him through, put new clothes on him, gave him a feed, and then he went on his way. Do you know, I've never seen him again. But that wasn't the point. It's more about me. It's more about me than him. Would I love unconditionally? Would I embrace someone that I, 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 I wouldn't normally go into his world? Taught me a big lesson. Because young people start coming on the altar calls in Auckland Church. Sometimes they smell. Sometimes they're struggling with their sexual identity. One young boy came in and I thought he was a girl. Came to church. I found out he sexually abused life had been ripped off remember him getting baptised and I had to say he's a boy I remember him coming up on an altar call one day and I thought God what, what do I do I just went up and I put my arms around him I hugged him he put his head on my shoulder he just started to cry I didn't need to preach to him He just needed to know his love. Unconditionally. Not judging him. See, that's God's mercy. That's who God is. God doesn't look at our weakness. God looks at who we can become. He covers our weakness with his mercy. He covers our weakness with his grace. He, He covers the flaws of our personality. And that's why a church can never, ever reach out to broken humanity when they departmentalize their lives. Can't do it. Can't do it. I I, I really, the reason I went to Dr. Ray Andrews is because I know him. I know that he's not a man who's just got a doctorate of psychology, but he went through the pits of hell in his own life. 
And he said, no one will ever have to go through the pain I've ever been through. I'm going to study so I can help people. So he went back to university, did a doctor of psychology. He learned a science that would help people. But when you're with him, you never ever feel the science. You feel the heart of a man who's trying to reach out to you to help you to change your life. He walked into one room, and I'll tell you the story, and then I'll close. This was in not New Zealand, it was in, in England, as far I can tell it. He sat down with a couple, and this is what he's like. This is just what he's like. He just sat, and he looked at the girl, husband and wife, and he just said these words. He said, you would, be, you would have to be an absolute bitch to live with. How many think he's a good counselor? <laughs> The husband looked and he went, <laughs> and he went on, he said, and these are the reasons why. He said, you've got a chemical imbalance in your life that's robbing you of the very things that God's created you to be. He wrote out a prescription because he's a doctor, and he said, I want you to go to your medical doctor, and I want you to have blood tests, and he went right through and told her exactly what was wrong with her. Even though he's not a doctor of medicine, he said, these are the things that you need to have checked. She went to the doctor exactly as he had said was the, was the chemical imbalance in her life. They, came, they corrected it, and she just miraculously changed. Why did he say you'd have to be an absolute bitch to live with to get her attention, to change her? Sometimes there's things in our life that we need to be offended by to change. Amen? Because we can skirt around them. And today I believe that my sermon is here for you. I want you to finish well. So does Jesus. That's the nature of the gospel. Perhaps you're like my grandson. You need to leave east. <laughs> Amen? I'm going west. <laughs> How many need to go west? <laughs> How many need to make a decision? Go west. Come on, go west. Come to where Jesus is. Perhaps you need to make a defining commitment for Jesus. God, I don't just want a Sunday. God, I want a, I want a God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. If I have an argument with my husband or my wife, I will process it in such a way that I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And I'm able to even come back, even if I wasn't wrong, and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That you can go up to someone in church that you might normally relate with, and you might be able to go up to them and say, you don't even need to say. You just need to love on them. Amen? <laughs> you just need to love on them. You just need to love on them. See, New Zealand doesn't need any more religion. It doesn't need the Sadducees. It doesn't need the Pharisees. It doesn't need the lawyers. It needs a manifestation of the glory of God. Amen? And God chooses to give his glory to us. How about standing with about you just standing for a moment in the presence of God? Just let the wonder, God's anointing is here, we don't have to 
We don't have to ask him to come. He's here. Came when we arrived. He's here. He's here. His presence. He's here to convict. He's here to minister. He's here to champion. He's here to encourage. He's here to open your eyes. He's here to open your heart. He's here to touch your life. But in a moment, I want to pray for people. Perhaps you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You've never opened your heart. You're a believer. Come to church, do your thing, but you've never made a commitment to Jesus. So easy to believe in God, but never commit. Today, I'm more keen to get people to commit, to open the door of their life and say, Jesus, I commit my life to you. I open the door of my heart. I want you to come in and be my Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've made that commitment, but you know today you're not living in that zone. You're just a mile away from where God would want you. In a moment, I'm going to count from three to zero. The moment I get to zero, I just want you to put your hand up and look at me. And when you look at me, I know who I'm praying for, and I'll ask you to put your hand down. But I would just love to join with you in prayer that today your life would be redefined because of the love of God, the mercy of God. God's not here to condemn you. He's here to minister to you. He does not hold you down. He wants to lift you up. He's a gracious, loving, good God. Amen. That's the nature of the God I love. So when I count from three down to zero, just shoot your hand up and I'll acknowledge it. You can put your hand down. But today I'm here to connect with you in prayer so that you can make that commitment to Jesus. I commit my life to you, Jesus. You ready? Three, two, one, zero. Thank you for lifting your hand. Amen. Thank you, mate, for lifting your hand. I really value it. Lady right at the back here, could you look at me, dear? Good on you. Sister, you know I'm praying for you. Thank you for lifting. Thank you for lifting your hand. Thank you for lifting your hand. This is about being all for God. It's about being all for Jesus. I'm not just going to believe I commit my life to you, Jesus. I'm not going to be a Sunday Christian. I'm going to be a Christian 24-7. Amen. My life's for you. Probably about five or six people lifted their hand. What we're going to do now is we're going to join. I'm going to lead you in I just want you to repeat this prayer after me. Amen. So all you've got to do is just repeat it after me. But in your heart, you believe every word that you say. In Jesus' name. Let's pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, let's say it louder. Lord Jesus, today I make a commitment to serve Jesus Christ, to open my life to him come into my life. I turn from those things I've done wrong. And I receive today your love, your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. You've heard my prayer. Today, you've come into my life. You're my Lord, my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give God a big clap. How many can remember 
three things. Pretty simple. You don't even need to have taken notes. Come on. First one. Come on, start together. Love God. Love. Love yourself confident. Love others. Start together. Love God wholeheartedly. Love yourself. Love others unconditionally. Who, want to, who wants to change their world? Come on, who wants to change their world? Who, want, who wants to, to be an instrument of God's grace and his glory to see New Zealand changed? We don't fear what's happened in Parliament. We're going to rise up. And in the face of it, we will become Jesus to broken humanity. Amen. That's the church. Amen. And I want you to lift your hands if you need to know God's anointing right now so that you can go from this place empowered to change your world in the name of Jesus. Right now, Father, I declare your anointing. I declare your power. I declare your authority, God, that you would come upon people's lives in Jesus' name. And Father, as we move from this building today, we would know we are different. We are empowered to make a change. We are empowered to speak to people who are struggling with their sexual identity, never to condemn them, but to lead them to a place where they can see that God, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't condemn. He only brings life. He is the one who restores and defines and and gives confidence to our heart. And in Jesus' name, I speak over every person, every home, every life. Let your anointing touch them. Now in Jesus' name, just with your hands lifted, there's something incredibly powerful about you even laying hands on people. That as you lay hands on people's lives, there will be an impartation there will be change. Just by simply going up to saying to someone, look, I'm a Christian, can I pray for you? Putting your hand on their shoulder, there will be a transference of comfort, encouragement, and life. I empower you to go. I empower you to lay hands on sick people. I empower you to break demonic influences over people's lives. I empower you to change our society in Jesus' name. Go in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, let's honor Pastor Bruce this morning. Great work.